Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we are in chapter 10. We're actually uh, going backwards in the text to verse 13. Last Sunday, Pastor Ben preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, starting in verse 25, but because of kind of an anomaly in our preaching schedule, uh, we actually had that one out of turn, so we're going to back up a passage and go to verse 13 of Luke chapter 10, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 24. Please give your attention to God's word. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 4, there is this amazing vision that was given to the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. John was, in a vision, invited up into the very throne room of heaven. And there he saw this glorious throne, an even more glorious person who sat upon the throne. The one who was seated on the throne seemed to even emanate beauty. And John heard Thunder, loud thunder, and saw bright lightning coming from the throne. Surrounding the throne were these magnificent creatures called the cherubim. And many other angels were flocked around the throne. And 24 elders representing all the people of God from every time period, every place, every nation were gathered around that throne. And they all fell on their face before the glorious one on the throne, worshiping him. It's at that point that John notices a scroll in the hand of the glorious one on the throne. And that scroll fascinates him. That scroll is sealed with seven different seals. And John has this overwhelming desire to know what's written on that scroll. 
He knows that it's incredibly important. And he's dying to know what's written on the scroll. But then he begins to weep because the buzz around heaven in the throne room is that no one is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But at that point, steps forward, the lion of the tribe of Judah, John says. But when he looks to see this glorious lion of the tribe of Judah, what he sees is the Passover lamb appearing as though he's been slain. And this lion slash lamb steps forward as a conqueror. And he is proclaimed to be the only one who is worthy to break those seals and open the scroll so that what is written on the scroll can be read and declared. And John and the others rejoice and worship. As the rest of the book of Revelation lays out, what is written on that scroll is what we might call the narrative to human history. The big story into which everything that happens day to day fits. It's the big story that explains where we come from, who we are, where we're going, and what it's all about, and what our purpose in life is all about. It's really the plan of redemption. It's the story of the covenant of grace written out on the scroll. It's the big picture. You know, as I think about it, isn't that what everybody out there in our culture is crying out for these days? They want the big narrative. They want the story. They want to know what makes it all make sense. Where'd we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? And there are so many narratives out there screaming to try to, to explain reality to people. People have many narratives to choose from. There's the Muslim narrative, there's the Buddhist narrative, there's the Jewish narrative, there's the Republican narrative, the Democratic narrative, the conservative narrative, the socialist narrative, the news media, the social media, Hollywood, the, the entertainment industry. There's a narrative there. What are we to believe? What is the big picture? What is the story? What makes everything make sense about life? What is reality? As you think about all these different narratives that people have to choose from, that people are buying into, what's the difference between what's written on the scroll in this vision, Apostle John's vision from the throne room of heaven, what's the difference between what's written, the narratives that's written on that scroll, and all those other narratives that are vying for people's attentions and beliefs? What's this simple? The scroll in the hand of the one on the throne is written by God. It is the very word of God. All these other narratives are invented by men, sinners, people like you and me. According to God's narrative, the purpose of our life, the reason why we are here, is to share that narrative with the world. That narrative is about how we knew, know God, how God sent his only son into the world to live a perfect life and then to offer up his perfect life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross, and then to conquer death by being raised from the, from, the from the grave, raised from the dead, and to ascend as a throne over heaven. That's how we came to know God, but that doesn't explain why we're here now. What, what's our purpose? What's our mission in life? 
What the scroll teaches us is that we are to take this word, this narrative, this explanation for reality, we're to take it out to the world that desperately needs to hear it. Jesus said before he ascended to the throne as he left his disciples to carry out this mission, this is how he described it in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth and as all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Take this word to the world. That's the purpose of your life. That's the mission for all of you this morning. In many ways, as we look at what Jesus had to say about the mission in Luke chapter 10 that we just read a moment ago, I want you to see this as being like the coach's last words in the locker room before he sends the team out to play the biggest game of its life. This is the pep talk. This is the perspective building. This is getting you to think the way the coach thinks, to see things the way he thinks, to block out what the world is trying to tell you about who you are, where you come from, where you're going, what your purpose of your life is. Block it out and listen to what the king says about the work of the kingdom that he has called us to do. In verses 1 through 12 that Pastor Owen preached on a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus chose 72 of his followers, 72 of his disciples. He chose them and sent them out on a mission. He instructed them, he trained them, he equipped them, and then he sent them out to take a message to the towns of Galilee and Judea, the towns where he would soon be going. The message was, the kingdom of God is at hand, and the king is coming. Prepare yourself. The beginnings of the gospel message they were to take to those who desperately need to hear it. And so here, as we come to verses 13 through 24 that we read just a moment ago, Jesus sends, gives it, actually at the beginning of it, gives his last words before he sends them out. And then when they return in success from that mission, he gives them perspective. He gives them instruction and perspective to understand the importance of what they have done and what they will do. These words are important to us because we're on the same mission. We have the same call. We have the same commission from our Lord to take this message to the world. And we must not lose sight of what Jesus has to tell us here, because especially as you think back on the recent weeks and months of all the election and all the strife and all of the, the different political views and philosophical views and moral views that have been debated and argued and, and, and shouted about in our culture, it's very easy for us in the church to begin to think that we're just another one of those narratives. We're just another one of those perspectives. We're another one of those special interest groups. What are those voices in culture competing with all the other voices to try to tell people what they should believe and how they should live. We are so much more than that. We are not just another voice. We are heralds of the king. We come with a summons, with a mission, with a message from the king of the universe. We represent the one who is truth. And the narrative that we have to share with the world is the narrative that will save people's eternal lives. People must hear, they must listen, they must receive and believe, or they'll be lost for eternity. That's what Jesus is getting across. That's really his first point, is the urgent priority of the message that we've been given. 
I want to go back to the end of the passage uh, from several weeks ago, verses 10 through 12. Notice what Jesus says there. He tells these messengers, these 72 messengers, that if they go into one of these towns and they share the message that they've been given by Jesus Christ, if they share the word of God and it's rejected, he tells them to leave. Don't stay and plead. Don't get down on your knees and beg. If your message is rejected, go ahead and move on to the next town. Go and find somebody who's willing to listen. Find the teachable. Find the ones with ears to hear and share the message with them. And he says, as you leave, I want you to perform a gesture. I don't know if they literally did this or not. I don't know if he's being literal or metaphorical. He probably is being literal. He says, wipe the dust of that town off your feet when you leave. It's an ominous gesture. It's a gesture of rejection. As I thought about this as a gesture of divine rejection, I thought about how our culture has a gesture of rejection, doesn't it? Involves using the finger on your hand. It's a way of rejecting somebody. You stick a finger at them and you reject them. You reject who they are, you reject what they're doing, you reject what they're saying. It's a gesture of rejection and we see it all the time anymore. It's become so common. And what I reflected on is how powerless it is. I mean, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you do your gesture of rejection. And what does that do to the person who cuts you off? Absolutely nothing. It has no impact on their life whatsoever. But it's important that you give that gesture of rejection. What a comparison to this gesture of rejection, wiping the dust of the town off their feet. You reject God's message, then God will reject you. That's the importance, the priority of the message that we've been given. Jesus then gives an ominous warning to those who reject the message in verse 12. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Remember what Sodom was. Sodom was, along with Gomorrah, one of those two cities that became so wicked in the eyes of a holy God that he destroyed those two cities with fire and sulfur in a moment as a message to the world that this is where wickedness leads. To the Jews, the term Sodom, the name Sodom, became equivalent with the epitome of wickedness. Similar to how we use the word Nazi for Nazi Germany today. But that, that is the darkest side of mankind. That's how the Jewish people used the word or the image of Sodom. And Jesus says, if they reject your message, they will come under greater judgment than Sodom. Think about that. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, this is what Peter said about Sodom. He said, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. In Jude, verse 7, Jude writes this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. If that's what Sodom deserved for its wickedness, how much more will the cities who reject the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? These towns in Galilee and Judea who were told that God's king 
has come. The kingdom was near. If they rejected that king, they would come under greater judgment in some of the most wicked cities of history. That's why Jesus goes on in verses 13 through 15. He mentions three other towns. Towns that had already received the most light of the ministry of Christ. He mentions Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These three towns or cities were located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee right next to each other. Capernaum was the biggest of those three. Capernaum was where Jesus based his whole operations for his Galilean ministry at the beginning of his earthly ministry. All these miracles and teachings that we've been studying for all these months, Jesus did this largely in the territory around Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. They had received all this light. They had heard Jesus teach in the synagogue. They had heard Jesus teach in the countryside. They had seen him feed 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread and a few fish. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him heal the sick. They'd heard about him walking on the water. They'd seen him still the storm. They had had all this revelation from God. All this light of truth was bestowed upon them. And most of the people still rejected him. And so Jesus calls out these three cities in particular. And he says, you know what? Tyre and Sidon, those are two cities farther north that never witnessed any of Jesus' teaching or miracles firsthand. These were Gentile pagan cities. The Old Testament prophets talked about Tyre and Sidon as places of arrogance and greed and cruelty. But Jesus says those places would have repented before Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum would repent. Because those three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were hardened in heart. Hardened in the rebellion, hardened in their rejection of Christ. What Jesus is teaching here is the principle that is throughout Scripture, which is that we are judged according to the light that we have received. We are judged according to the light that we have received. Jesus taught this same principle over in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, where he said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. The more light and truth that you are given, the more you are judged if you reject it. So for instance, if a Gentile, a pagan living in Tyre and Sidon, murdered somebody, they would be judged for that sin by a holy God. But if somebody living in Jerusalem, the city at the center of God's people, the old covenant, if somebody in Jerusalem murdered somebody in light of all the truth, the word of God, the light, the, the miracles, all that they had experienced, they would come under far greater judgment. Even American justice system recognizes that. The more you know what is true, the more that you reject and disobey, the more you are punished. That reflects the justice of God. Some Christians misunderstand and think that all sin is punished equally in eternity. It's not that way. You are judged by a holy God according to the light you have received. Romans chapter 1 teaches that all men are accountable before God. All men are guilty. All men will be judged for their sin because the light of creation reveals that there is a creator and reveals that we ought to seek that creator. But in our 
born, the, the nature that we're born with are in our sinful nature. We reject God. We run away from God. We shake our fist at God. We are hostile to God. But then Romans 2 goes on to say that the Jewish people need to be careful because if they reject the light of creation and the light of the word of God that they've been given beyond the light of creation, they come under greater judgment. You see, this is my concern for the country in which I live. Because America, as much or more than any other country on the face of the planet, has received so much light of the truth of God's word, so much light of the gospel. And we are living in a time where this country is blatantly, violently rejecting that light and truth that it's been given. The future looks dark for our country. I hate to say it, but it looks dark unless God sends revival unless God sends a renewed sense of conviction of sin under the light of the truth of Scripture and a renewed acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is no hope. We are judged according to the light that we've received. And so Jesus says in verse 16, He who hears you hears me, and he, the one who rejects you rejects me. We represent Jesus Christ. We've got to be sure that we're proclaiming his word. There are people who claim to represent Jesus Christ who are not proclaiming his word. They're proclaiming the words of men. But if we represent Jesus Christ by proclaiming his word, that's the promise. And that's the ominous message to our culture. We represent the risen king of the universe, the one who is on the throne. And you, if the world rejects our message, they reject him and must bear the consequences. The second lesson that Jesus teaches here is that we, as those who have been entrusted with this message, that that's the mission of our life, is to take this message, this narrative to the world. The second lesson is that we need to understand the power and authority of the message that we've been given. First of all, I want to point out there in verse 17 how these 72, it talks about when they came back from having gone to the towns, they did see success in ministry. They saw Demons being cast out. They saw people being healed and they saw people, they witnessed people receiving the word, the message and believing and trusting. And so it says they returned with joy because they've been given the privilege of taking the word of God to those who were ready to hear it and who responded in faith. And I just point that out to say that is the joy that drives everyone's ministry. Everyone's ministry of the word. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why I, I have the courage and the desire to step into a pulpit and preach God's word because there is no greater joy than being used of God to communicate his word to somebody who needs to hear it. Somebody whose life is transformed by hearing it, receiving it, believing it. There is no greater joy in this fallen world than being used to communicate God's word to those who need to hear it. That's the joy that these messengers experienced. But in verse 20, Jesus, interestingly, he gives a word of caution regarding that joy because it's very easy for us in our sinfulness to begin to take pride in the success. If God uses us to minister the word of God to somebody else, it's very easy for us to very subtly, unknown to ourselves, begin to take credit for what we did as though we came up with the truth that's in the message. 
as though we, it's our persuasive power that led people to believe it and to act upon it. And so Jesus reminds these rejoicing messengers to be careful to find their joy not in the success of their ministry, but in the grace of salvation. He says, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Make sure that your joy is based in what God has given to you. Make sure your joy is based in the gospel and not in your works of ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about Judgment Day. And he said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. That's the danger of finding your joy in success in the ministry and not finding your joy in the gospel, the grace that your names are written in the book of life in heaven. But these 72 messengers, the first thing they say in the midst of their joy is that, that they were shocked that even the demons submitted to them. They're a little giddy with the, the power of the message that when they spoke the word of God and people responded in faith, even demons fled from them. Do you notice how Jesus responded? He points to them to the source of that power. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, this is Jesus speaking. He is the eternal son of God. He existed before the creation as God, the son of God. And he saw Satan cast out of heaven. He was part of that. As the Trinity cast Satan, a mighty angel, and those rebellious angels out of heaven because of their rebellion against the throne, when Satan and the demons were cast out of heaven, Jesus witnessed that. But that's not the fall that he's referring to. He knows that's going to be the first thing we think about, and that certainly is the basis for the second fall. There's a second great fall of Satan that Scripture talks about, and that's what happened when Jesus came the first time. In, when the Pharisees challenged Jesus about his authority to cast out demons, he was casting out demons left and right. The Pharisees claimed that he was doing that by the power and authority of Satan. Do you remember how Jesus responded to that in Matthew 12? He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He was saying that the reason I have power and authority over these demons, the reason they flee from me is that I have come to bind the strong man. The strong man is Satan. He had come to bind Satan so that the message of the gospel could go forward. It's the same thing Jesus was talking about in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, where he said, he made this declaration, now is the judgment upon, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Notice the connection. Satan is cast out in the ministry of Christ and his disciples. He is cast out, he is bound, so that Christ can draw all people to himself. All the nations, all the tribes, all the races, all the peoples can be drawn to Christ 
because Satan has been cast out and bound in a very real sense. You see, that's what the background of what Revelation chapter 20 is talking about. When people look at end times teaching, what the book of Revelation teaches about end times, they puzzle over what the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 in chapter 20 is talking about. Let me read the first few verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might no longer deceive the nations any longer. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This happened in the first coming of Christ. This happened when Christ came to establish his kingdom through his death and resurrection and ascension. He bound Satan. He cast him down. It was the second great defeat of Satan. Satan is not bound in the sense of incapacitated. He certainly is very active. But he's bound in the very specific sense that Revelation 20 verse 3 describes. He is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And that's what happened in the ministry of Christ and the apostles. In the Gospels and the book of Acts. You have Satan bound so that the gospel can go to all nations, so that all men can hear the, the light of the truth of the gospel and know Jesus Christ and be saved. That is the power of the message that we've been given. Satan cannot stop it. Sometimes we get so defeatist in the light of the, the dark forces that are opposed to the church in our own culture. But the promise of Jesus here is that Satan cannot stop this message. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. And so we go forth with this message. So Jesus puts it in these terms in verse 19. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That doesn't mean that we're going to start having snake handling in our worship services. That's not what it's talking about. He's speaking metaphorically. Scripturally speaking, the symbolism of snakes and scorpions is speaking of the power and the activity of Satan and the demons in opposition to the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, I am giving you authority. And he says this, and ultimately this will be achieved and, and established through his crucifixion and resurrection, his defeat of death and his ascension to the throne. That means that the message will go forward. Satan and his demons cannot stop it. We will tread upon the serpent and the scorpions. It's that language that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where it was promised to Adam and Eve that a seed of the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 16 when he says that soon Satan will be crushed under your heel. Christ, through the church, is going to conquer the forces of darkness. They cannot stop the message. They may win over, and they will, and they have win over nations. They'll win over cultures, but they cannot stop the gospel until Christ comes again. And ultimately, we cannot be harmed. This is where our boldness comes from, is that the Lord will protect us. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. Matter of fact, if you're faithful in preaching the gospel, sharing the truth with people, it's going to make your life difficult. It will make your life harder. You will suffer in this life, but we will come to no ultimate harm. 
There's an old Mark Hurd song called Eye of the Storm that I used to love. And the, the chorus of that Mark Hurd song repeated over and over this, these words, out, out in the eye of the storm, the friends of God suffer no permanent harm. There is no permanent harm. We may suffer in this life, but that's just a blink in light of eternity. And that's what Jesus is getting at earlier in Luke chapter 21, actually later in Luke, in chapter 21. He makes this statement, which sounds like a contradiction when you read it on the surface. He says, beginning in verse 12, Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. (laughs) You're going to suffer. You may even die for the sake of the gospel, but not a hair of your head will perish. Ultimately, you are protected by the Lord. You are secure in him. Your suffering in this life serves as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to witness, he says. But ultimately, he will preserve you into eternity and you will be restored and perfected far better than you are now. We will tread upon serpents. Psalm 91, I love Psalm 91. Listen to the language. This is how you understand this kind of extreme language in the Psalms. It says, beginning in verse 12, on their hands, they will, uh, verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Why? Because he holds, this is God speaking, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. And so we speak with power and authority because of the message we've been given. It's not in us, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. But his power and authority is transmitted to this world through his word. And as we carry that word to the, to the world, we are eternally secure in him. He will protect us. He will deliver us, even through death itself. Which brings us to his final lesson, which is the privilege. We go out sharing this message with the world, not timidly, not hesitantly. We share it boldly because of the power and authority, but also because we're so privileged to have it. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe has put his word into our hands to take to the world. In verse 21, it says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and prayed to the Father, thanking him that he had, quote, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Remember, we said earlier that Jesus speaks of children sometimes in a positive sense, in the sense that they are, they are humble compared to adulthood, not humble in, in, in terms of relations to God's righteousness, but humble in, replacing, in comparison to adulthood. And they're trusting, they're open and teachable and trusting. And so he said back in chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, that the way to receive him and the way to receive the father is like a little child. Well, that's how we receive this truth. We receive it like little children. We, we're open, we trust, we accept because it's our father speaking to us. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's how we receive the word of God, not in pride, but in humility, recognizing we don't deserve it. We would have never dreamed it up on our own. It's a gift to us. 
back in chapter 8, Jesus said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. If you approach God, if you approach the message of heaven, if you approach this narrative of the scroll, if you approach it in pride, then it'll be hidden from you. Because God hides it from those that see themselves as wise and understanding. In the wisdom of this world, you will never know the truth. But it is revealed to those with a heart of childlike spirit. An openness, trusting, receiving spirit. So as we share the truth, we understand that we share out of a humble thankfulness, not an arrogance. We are to rejoice in the process of being used by God to share this truth with the world because he chose us before the foundation of the world. He says, remember what he said? Rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to know God and to receive his word and to share it with the world. He took away our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh so that we would seek him and know him and love him. He took away our blind eyes and gave us eyes that see. He took away our deaf ears and gave us ears that hear. And so he goes on in verse 23 to say, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What a privilege to live after the first coming of Christ. To live after his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teachings. To live after his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. To live after the ministry of the disciples and the writings of the Apostle Paul and the writings of John and Peter. To have the fullness of God's revelation in our hands. What a privilege to have all of God's truth that is needed until Christ comes again to make all things new. It's given into our hands. It's a privilege. It's a gift that we did not deserve in any way. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, they longed deeply to see and understand everything that's been shown to us in the scriptures that have been revealed since their day. They saw Christ. They believed in Christ. They trusted in Christ. They were saved by the blood of Christ, just like you and me. But they saw Christ in symbols. They saw him in shadows. And they saw him in prophecies. We see the fullness of his, res his revelation. And what a privilege that is to know it and to take it to the world. Remember what Peter said about the Old Testament saints and even the angels over in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read to you beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." You see, that's why this is a pep talk. It's like, wow. I mean, I, I often think that. I mean, I would have loved to have been a professional baseball player, a professional football player. I mean, I think a good coach will say, listen, you guys get to do what so few people in the world get to do. Go out and get paid millions of dollars to play this silly game. You know, what a privilege 
But think about we as Christians, we are given God's word, the one true God. And we're given the message of salvation that can deliver people from hell. We didn't deserve it at all. He put it in our hands and he handed it to us. And he gave us the ability to take it to the world. That's the privilege. Worthy is the lamb to take the scroll and open its seals. The scroll has been taken. The seals have been broken. The blood has been shed. The plan of redemption, the covenant of grace can be played out in history and we are a part of it. We are God's messengers. We're the king's heralds for state college, for Penn State, for Center County, for Pennsylvania. We've been given the privilege of handling the word of truth. And this message is urgent and powerful. In King Josiah's day, the word of God was found buried and forgotten in the temple. And when it was brought to King Josiah, he had it read publicly. And guess what? Revival and reformation came to the people of God. In the days of the Protestant Reformation, the word of God had been buried under centuries of human tradition and falsehoods. And Martin Luther and John Calvin and and other reformers took the word of God and brought it back out into the light and showed it to the people. And guess what happened? Revival and reformation came to the people of God and to the church. We need another revival. We need another reformation. Let's pray that God will use us as his messengers to make it happen, at least in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our community, if not throughout the state and the nation and the world. Let's pray. Father, we long to see change. We watch the world around us become darker, more rebellious, more defiant, more hardened to the truth, and our hearts grieve Sometimes we become frustrated, sometimes we despair, sometimes we want to throw up our hands and walk away. Lord, I pray that this pep talk from your word, this this, uh, reminder of the power and authority and the truth and the light and the promise of your word, I pray, Lord, that it would re-energize us, revive us. Lord, bring us under conviction of sin. Let judgment begin with the church. But then, Lord, let us take the message of holiness and the message of grace to the world that needs to hear it. May we be given the privilege of pointing people to Jesus Christ as the only hope, the only way to be reconciled to you and to avoid judgment. Lord, use us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.